and welcome back to the Foodist Podcast. I'm Daria Rose, and it has been a really, really long time since I have recorded a new show. So hello, everyone. Uh, gosh, it's been probably 10 months since I've been doing this regularly. For those of you who don't know, I, I had a baby, I moved to another state, and it's just been, let's just say, difficult to turn the podcast back into a regular thing. But I'm excited now to be back to be doing this regularly. And I'm excited for you all to join me. So in this time that I've taken off, I've actually done a lot of thinking about the direction I want to take the show. And traditionally, what I've done is I have been coaching people through their various health style challenges live on the show. And that has been super fun. But moving forward, I want to take the show in a different direction. And specifically, I want to start doing expert interviews. This is something I actually avoided early on when I first launched the show. I thought that a lot of people did interview shows and expert shows, and I didn't think it was particularly original. But the more I think about it or have thought about it, the more I realize that I'm not, I don't do what most health and wellness people on podcasts or on the internet are doing. Uh, I am not talking about specific micro or macronutrients. I'm not giving you a specific dieting protocol to follow. I'm not giving you a specific exercise protocol to follow. What I talk about is sort of the metacognition behind all that stuff, right? Because what I've learned over the years of talking to you, 10 years now, is that you guys are really smart. You know, most of you understand that vegetables are healthier than cookies, that you should be eating more unprocessed foods and avoiding processed foods. And that's actually pretty straightforward. And that's the crux of my nutrition message and a lot of people's. But Obviously, it's way harder to actually do that than say you want to do that. And that is what I help you with. And I realized in, in my break that the books I read, the people I listen to, the, the science even that I follow now is very different than what you're hearing on most health and wellness podcasts. And I think that I want to expose all you guys to those people because they're brilliant. They have really powerful messages and you should just be hearing it directly from the horse's mouth rather than through me, I think. So that is the direction I'm going to take the show moving forward. I'm really, really, really excited about it. I hope you are too. And without further ado, I'm going to introduce you to our first guest. So for the very first show, I, I was actually invited to a conference uh, in Canada in you know, right outside Toronto, called the Fireside Conference. And it was really fun to go. And they asked me to go and do a live show there. And what luck. I happen to be, it happens to be just a couple of hours from Ottawa, where today's guest, Yoni Friedhoff, lives. So for those of you who don't know Yoni, he is really brilliant. He's the mastermind behind the Weighty Matters blog, which I site all the time and absolutely love. He's also the director of the Bariatric Medical Institute in Ottawa, where he helps obese patients lose weight and get healthy. And one of the things I love about Yoni and his message is that he is one of the very few people, especially MDs, who understands that psychology is important when it comes to long-term sustained 
health and weight loss. And moreover, pleasure and enjoyment are important. And that that gets a little tricky because it's a, it's a subjective thing, but that it's critical. And that without it, you are not going to get people sticking with healthy behaviors. And what a refreshing, beautiful thing. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I'm crazy talking about this on my own, but Yoni helps me feel sane. And he came out to Fireside. We actually did a live show. It's kind of, I'm not sure the, the quality of the recording because we were, we were sit, literally sitting around a campfire and trucks were driving by and it wasn't, we weren't in a studio or anything like that, but it was still a really great conversation and I hope you enjoy it. So let me know what you think about the new show format. Uh, my, my hope is to do one or two shows a month moving forward and we'll take it from there. All right. Thanks, guys. Hello and welcome to the Foodist Podcast. I'm Daria Rose and we are live from Fireside at Camp Walden in Canada. Canada. (laughs) And um, it's really cool. We're actually sitting around a campfire, no joke. And... This is the first podcast I've done actually in a while. I've been on maternity leave and uh, taken a little hiatus, so it's great to be back. We're actually going to do a little bit of a reset on the show. So traditionally what I've done is a lot of coaching and um, some success stories and talking to real people struggling with health and food and eating issues. And that's super fun, but I thought it was a good time to bring in some experts because there's a lot of really amazing people that know a lot of things about this topic that I think need to be exposed to the world a little more. So today, uh, we're going to be switching to more of an interview type format. And I have here with me Yoni Friedhoff. Hello. <laughs> I'm so excited. Thank you for coming. It's a pleasure. It's not far. It was easy. <laughs> he, uh, he hopped in the car and drove over here to hang out with us. And um, we're going to do this. So those of you who don't know me very well, uh, my background is in neuroscience. I have a PhD in that topic, but along the way, I got sidetracked by health, nutrition, dieting, lots of dieting, and my career sort of took a swing toward food, and this is what I've been doing for the last 10 years or so. I have this podcast called Foodist, I have a book called Foodist, and I have a website called Summer Tomato that you are all welcome to check out, although that's been pretty dormant (laughs) since the maternity leave as well, but there there is a little bit of action over there. Yoni, I will let you introduce yourself. Well, I'm not on maternity leave right now, and uh, although I am the father of three children, allegedly, and uh, <laughs> I'm a family physician uh, by training, so I, I've I've been a physician for a long time. I'm on the the back nine of life now, I suppose. And in 2004, I opened an interprofessional office where we work with dietitians, trainers, clinical psychologists, behavioral social workers. Uh, and physicians, and did I say registered dietitians? I must have, um, on weight management. And, you know, where where things begun with us as a, sort of a private, you come on in and we'll help you place, it's changed over the years. And now actually in Ontario and Canada where medicine socialized, uh, the vast majority of what I do now is funded by the province of Ontario by our Ministry of Health, and I work with a number of different patient populations from adults to parents to uh, pre- and post-surgical patients. And my practice has been exclusively in weight management since 2004. 
Uh, I did write a book as well. It's called The Diet Fix. So good. And, if you haven't uh, read it, definitely worth a read. I like it, but I'm really biased. And, well, I've read it twice. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that's that's who I am and what I do. Yes. So thank you so much for coming. This is really cool. So what's really interesting to me is our philosophies are almost identical. I've, it's really eerie sometimes. <laughs> like I just reread your book to prepare for this interview. And I'm I'm just like, we came to the exact same place. And I'm really curious to hear from you how you got to your methodology and your philosophy, because I know you didn't learn it in med school. No, <laughs> so. So nobody learns anything about nutrition in med school, uh, pretty much. It's gotten better over the years. So, And there actually are programs now that are really trying a lot harder than they used to. Uh, we have a little bit at the University of Ottawa, but not a lot. Well, and I also want to take a pause there for one minute. So nutrition is one thing. And I know that uh, in medical training doesn't give a lot of nutrition, but our philosophies go far beyond nutrition. So what specifically, if, if you aren't familiar with what our work, we both champion something very unique, which is that you should actually enjoy your life. And that if you don't adopt healthy habits, eating habits, exercise habits that you enjoy, you're not going to stick with them. And if you don't stick with them, you're going to go back to the old thing. And and I love what you point out all the time is this enjoyment is not the same as tolerate. It's not it can't just it's not that bad. Like <laughs> I can do this. It's not that bad. It has to actually be fun to some degree, something that makes you feel good. And there are not very many people talking about that. So how did you get there? So I definitely didn't start there. So when we opened in 2004, it was very much more by the book where the book at the time and even now, to some extent, the book said that I was supposed to set a five, 10 percent weight loss goal with each and all of my patients, that I should be offering at least partial meal replacements where they would be replacing one or more meals a day with uh, some sort of a supplement. Mm, and delicious. and that. I should then reset that goal every time they reach the 5 to 10% mark until they get to wherever it is they were going. And we did that. I mean, that's that's literally what our office looked like to a large degree in the early days. Is that still the standard at most places? It's certainly, it's not at all uncommon to have medically driven care that involves meal replacements, that's for sure. And there is good evidence, certainly for the short term, that they're useful. It's just that it occurred to me fairly early on that the short term isn't what's important to people. It's the long term that matters to people. You know, losing weight, uh, there's lots of ways to suffer to do that, meal replacements being one of them. But uh, as you were pointing out, if you want whatever weight you lose to stay off, you better like the way you lost it in the first place. Because if you stop doing the thing or the things that helped you to lose the weight, well, then you're going to go back to old patterns, old habits, old calories, and the weight tends to return with those. Right. So in terms of how did we get there, really how we got there was consequent to watching patients. And so we, we were helping people lose weight. And then I was watching them regain their weight. And I was sort of scratching my head as to really am I helping people by putting them on these non-sustainable approaches? And it was probably in 2005 where uh, we coined the term in my office best weight, which is whatever weight a person reaches when they're living the healthiest life they actually enjoy. So people do all sorts of kooky things for weight management. But if you don't actually like the life you're living when you're losing, you're almost certain to gain it back over time. And so it was that moment, probably about a, he a year or so into practice, that, that things changed in our office. Impressive that you picked up on that so fast. Well, it's all I was doing. So maybe <laughs> I got lucky. You got lucky. And so did you come to... Like, how did you zero in on the, the psychological aspect of it? Because there's, you know, there's a lot of reasons it could have been failing. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, ultimately everybody's different, and I think that that was something that you know I always appreciated from the early days. You know, I, I would look at all of the different diets that were out there, and I spent a lot of time reading a lot of different diet books,、uh, and there were success stories from all of them.、Mm-hmm. And so, when you appreciate the fact that. You know, e- even the world's stupidest diets have long-term success stories, and that's not a negative statement. Because for the people who have succeeded on those diets, well, good for them. And I, I think that I always appreciated that aspect of things. We were never tied to one particular approach,、uh, but appreciating that you can help people try to find their way. Uh, that was re- relatively commonsensical for somebody in medicine, really, because medical care is not one size fits all. I mean, if you look at any medical problem, whether it's hypertension,、uh, high cholesterol, arthritis, I mean, there's lots of different、uh, treatment strategies, lots of different medications, and so it's it's fairly straightforward, I think, for physicians to think about the possibility of there being multiple ways to get to the same place.、Mm. And so, was it just in terms of compliance that made you focus on enjoyment, or was it something, some magic pattern recognition that you picked up on? Or no, no. I mean, I I think it's appreciating that you know, people tended to stop when they didn't like it anymore, and when you see that somebody's, you know, you, you you they've had some success with their weight loss, but they're not able to sustain it, and you start exploring why, and it's because they're not happy with what they're doing, with what they're eating, with what their their choices are. You appreciate, well, yes, I can help somebody lose weight. Really quickly, yeah.、Um, and there are lots of programs that promise that,、uh, including in Ottawa where I practice. But that was not the approach that I wanted to adopt. You know, helping people hurry their way down only to regain their weight was not was not a valuable thing. Yeah, I just feel like it's such a big epiphany, and like so many people miss it. You know, that you know, it's not just. Because when we tend to think of compliance, we tend to blame people, you know, for not having willpower or not trying hard enough or not caring enough or, or something like that. But for to turn it and say, actually, you're just doing something you don't like. If you liked it more, you'd do it more. That's, I mean, that sounds obvious, but in this world, it's not ever. It's so rarely that approach. Well, I think in in, in weight management specifically, the world expects. I mean, you, you use the word compliance, and the world expects. That the people who succeed are the people who can suffer the longest and the most, and they have、exactly. the most willpower. But you know, I just don't think that when it comes to something as seminally pleasurable as food and as important as food, food's not just fuel. Food is comfort. Food is celebratory. Food is networking.、Um, you know, there is no event too small to not be anchored around food, including the fireside conference. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of great food here, and it's a, it's a lot of fun, and, and it's a big part of this place. And if if it were just fuel. Well, then all of these approaches will work terrifically well, but but that's just not the way it is. Yeah. The, the other thing that I think, and this probably took me more time to appreciate, but I think that the percentage of people out there who actually can ha- have the luxury of trying to intentionally change their behavior in the name of health is incredibly small. You know, for most people, life's really hard, and this as something worthy of prioritization, and again, about something that is so valuable from a a comfort perspective, from a a neurophysiology perspective too.、Uh, it, I think that the world is very cruel to suggest to people that you know this is something that if you just wanted it badly enough, you could have it every time, right? Because、uh, that's just not the way it is for most people, right? There's, I feel like there's another sort of tricky thing that, because I feel like most people don't think of it this way still to this day, the that 
if you're not doing something you like, it's not going to stick around. And I, I feel like one of the reasons for that is because we're pretty good at convincing ourselves. And I'd love to hear your take on this because you've talked to a lot of people about it. We're really good at convincing ourselves that it's not that bad, the diet, especially if the numbers are moving in a way we like. And um, I feel like that leads to part of the illusion that it's not that bad. Just keep pushing through. Just keep using your willpower. Just keep trying harder. But I don't know. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah. a psychological trick your mind plays on yourself that you can keep doing this if you were strong enough. Well, I mean, certainly you can keep doing with it until the scale stops whispering sweet nothings in your ear. And then it becomes more difficult. Do I really want to keep doing this thing that I don't particularly enjoy, but I enjoyed this one particular outcome? You know, it's like a bad relationship with a really attractive individual. Like, you, you know, you can put up with the badness for a really long time. But when, you know, the the bloom is off the rose of the attraction piece to some degree, you're probably going to get out, out of town because you, you don't want to stay there any longer. And I think that it's very seductive, the weight loss piece for everybody, because the world tells us how important it is all the time, uh, perhaps erroneously. Uh, but while you're being seduced by the scale, yeah, you can put up with a really crappy relationship. But um, as soon as the seduction piece is gone, I think it's easy to let go of that relationship. And, you know, we even use words like cheat when we talk about dieting. And I think it's a it's a fair analogy, because if your relationship is so crappy, you have to cheat on it constantly. It's probably a bad one to begin with. (laughs) Yeah, I I used to say that diets don't work. And I stopped saying that they actually work pretty well, which is one of the problems. I think it's one of the reasons it's seductive is because they work. They just work temporarily and they require suffering. Yeah. And we're taught that that, that that's okay, Right. So so we're taught that a diet is supposed to be suffering like it's some some amount of either restricting foods or being hungry or over exercising, um, not going out to the same degree and that that suffering is worthwhile, that this ultimate sort of goal of weight loss is worthy of that suffering, which I think that people can convince themselves in the short run is true, uh, but not so much in the long run. Right. And I think there's this deep part of our brains that calls bullshit on it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think most people know if you can ask, you ask somebody on one of these diets, you know, are you going to stay on this diet? You know, I think they, they generally know that, no, this is not a lifestyle. This is not a for good. This is a for now. Uh, unfortunately, it's a chronic issue. And so for now, it doesn't, doesn't last. And, and that's really what we're seeing. Yeah. So you have an amazing term called traumatic dieting. And I, I, when, I first, when I first read that you coined that, I, just, I thought it was so perfect because I, mean, I grew up, I started my first diet, I was 11 years old and I was not overweight. I just, my mom did it and she was having Slim Fast for breakfast. And when you're 11, a chocolate milkshake sounds amazing to have for breakfast, even though it tastes like powder and crap. So, you know, I, I did like all these diets and even though I didn't need it, it did lead to all sorts of trauma. I mean, I, it was, gosh, I was like 23 or 24 before I started changing. So that's over a decade of torture. And I think that term is just so right on because I was so willing to just put myself through anything, just anything. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I, I did use the term, I called it traumatic dining disorder, and I used it somewhat tongue in cheek. Obviously, the, you know, it's a, it's a play on words to some degree, but it's real for a lot of people. So going on all of these diets that are, in many cases, from by definition, not sustainable, uh, but then blaming yourself for your struggles to sustain them, um, is traumatizing. And for some people, really dramatically so. You know, everybody's disappointed if they don't do the thing that they wanted to do. But 
For some people, this goes far beyond disappointment, leading to actual depression, um, uh, lack of belief in their own self-efficacy or self-worth, and it's repeated over and over and over again for some people f- for decades. And I really do think that that sort of traumatized dieting for some people fuels itself because you know every time you believe you have failed it sets you up for that next time that you're going to do it. But you're taking it on in the same suffering sense that will not last. Um, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking in some cases. And again, working with, with people in, at times, they'll come to see me and, you know, whether they're issues with mood and self-worth, self-efficacy are relatable to weight or dieting, in a sense, doesn't matter because once you've got that headspace, it's very difficult to intentionally change your behavior if if you're struggling with a mood disturbance. And so, you know, I'll talk about it like, you know, if you want to go for a run, but your ankle sprain, doesn't matter how you sprain your ankle in the first place, you're not running until the ankle's fixed. And many people ascribe their sprain to their weight, so to speak, if we're using this analogy and beating it to death a bit more. Um, but Unfortunately, trying something else that is further traumatizing to that injury is probably not a good plan, yet that's what's out there. Yeah. I'm glad you brought me this too. It's gotten cold in the shade. <laughs> um, so uh, the another thing I wanted to ask you about, so on this whole notion of bad advice <laughs> from dieting, and oh, it's really cute on you. <laughs> it's cute. Um, is that there's a... I think, I don't know if I've heard anybody say this, but you, and I, it's definitely something I'd say, this is why I'm saying our philosophies are eerily similar, is that don't eat unless you're hungry is terrible diet advice. For, for most people, it is the worst advice possible. The wait until you're hungry to eat, which is as seminal for many people as anything in dieting. Uh, but, you know, if you think about hunger in the context of when, you know, eating behavior. So let's say you're, you're hungry and you go to the supermarket. I mean, I know if I'm hungry and I go to the supermarket, I shop very, very differently. <laughs> but we're doing the same thing when we're shopping from our plates, our cupboards, our freezers, a menu. You know, if you're hungry, your choices are going to be different. You're going to eat more. You're going to eat faster. You're going to eat worse. And unfortunately, when it comes to weight management, many people do struggle um, with dietary restraint, especially at nighttime, especially when they're hungry. And yet this idea of I need to be hungry, I won't eat until I'm hungry, it still permeates almost all diets. And for many people, especially those who struggle at night, I find um, the idea that I will get I will let myself get hungry or I will skip meals because intermittent fasting is a, a really uh, popular thing nowadays. And for some people, it works wonderfully well, but not generally the people who tend to struggle with dietary control at night. Uh, those people I would not be encouraging uh, a great deal of intermittent fasting for. Yeah, 100 percent. There's there's also another component, I think, when you say don't eat unless you're hungry or you shouldn't you should only eat when you're hungry. It negates a lot of the reasons that we are valid reasons to eat, like hedonic reasons, pleasure reasons, social reasons, uh, and whatnot. And, and I, it, it sets it up so that those are now bad reasons to eat. And you're a bad person if you're eating for those reasons, as if you're not human. Yeah, I'd rather people eat preemptively. Uh, so, I mean, rather, 
I'm very egalitarian. I mean, I really don't care what people do. So long as they like what they're doing enough to keep doing it, it's good by me. And, you know, uh, from the most ridiculous to the most boring diets, they're all fine if you happen to enjoy them. Uh, but certainly in my experience working with quite literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people, um, again, those people who struggle at night, if they try these approaches that lead them to be hungry regularly, it will not end well for most of them. And so we do t tell people and encourage people to at least try multiple small meals and snacks, um, always inclusive of protein and not bothering to drink too much in the way of calories. But uh, at the end of the day, you need to like what you're doing enough to keep doing it. But for again, for those people who struggle at night, which I think is the majority of people out there. Yeah. Um, you know, it may not be the best approach to let yourself get hungry. And how'd you come up with the idea of prescribing chocolate? Well, so I prescribed a lot of things over the years. So um, I have written prescriptions for chocolate. That was actually the title of the book that I wanted, but uh, my editors said no. Really? Um, yeah, I thought <laughs> it was... a great title. Yeah, I wanted it to be a prescription for chocolate, and uh, that was going to be the title of the book, and that was not what happened, and... Um, that's too bad, but he in any know case, American markets. <laughs> uh, yeah. In any case, the uh, the idea is is that we had so many people in our practice who were avoiding foods that they loved, and again, under the belief that this was going to lead them to long term success. And I feel personally that again, for the majority of people out there, abstinence from something that you love that is readily available that provides you with pleasure um, is probably not going to be a successful long term strategy. And so I literally have written prescriptions for chocolate. I've written prescriptions for beer. I've written prescriptions for fried chicken, uh, for ice cream. I mean, you name it. I've written prescriptions <laughs> for it over the years. Uh, but the, the notion is quite simply that if you're restricting the food you like the most in the world and you think that is going to be your successful long-term strategy, again, unless you're a very rare individual, and I've met some who have totally cut things out that they love for decades, and God bless them, but that's not most of us. Yeah. And also... Screw that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's personal. But yeah, I mean, so some people, at the end of the day, the, the question is, you know, is it worth it? Right. And I, I think it's a really important question. Is it worth it? And so that's not a question anybody can answer but the individual. And for some people, even if it is incredibly pleasurable, it might not be worth it. And I'm OK with that. But I think that challenging people to ask themselves that question is really, really important because if we don't ask, is it worth it? It's always worth it. And then the follow-up question, once you've decided, yes, it's worth it, is, well, okay, well, what's the smallest amount of it? You need to be happily satisfied. And if you're hungry, that amount will be much larger. And so try to, you know, control yourself around your favorite food that you're not eating that frequently and you're hungry. You're really screwed as far as quantities go. Um, but if you're not hungry and you've said it's worth it, well, then you can ask, okay, what's the smallest number? And I work with parents of children. One of our programs uh, in my office is working with parents of kids between the ages of 5 and 12 who struggle with weight. We don't work with the children directly because I worry about their self-esteem and their body image and their relationship with food, and they're not really in charge of things. But Halloween, which is coming up, it's, it's September already, soon it'll be October, it's a great teachable moment for is it worth it and what's the smallest amount you need to be happy. And I remember having the conversation, I've got three daughters, um, and having the conversation with them, I didn't decide for them, but I said, listen, it's Halloween, you guys are going out, you're going to have candy, but... What do you think the right number is? What's the smallest number that's going to make you happy? And that's how much you should have. And not only were they co comfortable in doing that, but 
It also allowed them to take stock and to look through things and decide what's going to be the best of all of the things there and really get a lot more pleasure rather than the mindless eating that all of us do when we don't ask those questions. Yeah, so you actually segued beautifully into my next my next question, which was, well, not, not even question, but statement, which is that I think that structure, is it worth it? How much, what's the minimal amount you need to be happy is such an ingenious little test that you can do to develop a healthy relationship with indulgences. And, and it's, and I think a really important point is that it's different every time. So it's not like you, there's some, yes, chocolate's worth it generically. And yes, I need a hundred grams of it or whatever you need. It's not that it's right now in this moment is that like, I know what that is. I know how delicious it is. I know the calorie level. Is that worth it for me right now? Am I hungry? How often can I have this particular thing? Like in, in, in the sense of, is it rare to get? You know, is it grandma's special thing she only makes once a year or whatever? Is it something I can find at any corner store any day of the week? And, and, then, and then going back, and once you decide it's worth it, not just going crazy, but realizing that there are, there's a happy level. And we all know it doesn't actually even feel good to eat more than that. And yet we do it all the time. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that people notice the first few bites and the last few bites, but a lot of the middle bites are just there. <laughs> right. Um, and, and again, especially if you're, if you're hungry, um, there'll be more middle bites uh, and, and they won't be amazing, but they'll be there for sure. And, and more so. And, you know, the analogy that works best for those two questions is money. And like, we all buy things that we don't need, but we look at the price tags. We consider how much income we have, what our debt looks like, what our expenses are coming up. And we make decisions. But there are some times where we'll indulge food wise or purchase wise for reasons that just because like we, we just, we feel like it, we deserve it. That's okay too. But you're right. There are special occasions where it makes a lot more sense that yes, it's definitely worth it, but it's also okay to recognize that sometimes it'll be just because, just because there's a table in the lounge over there that's got a, it's covered in chocolate bars. It's <laughs> going to be more difficult, you know, especially in the context of here to say no, but then it's so important to ask that second question because so many people trying to manage weight and to sort of navigate a healthier lifestyle. You know, they believe that once they've blown it, they've blown it. So it might as well go big or go home. And I, I think that these questions allow people to, to not do that. You know, you can, it's all you can thoughtfully eat rather than all you can eat. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being thoughtful. And sometimes, you know, it'll be thoughtful to have a lot of calories that aren't good for you or to do very little exercise because it's worth it. I do that. <laughs> yeah. Healthy people do that. And I think I think that's really part of the I think part of the struggle for people is when I when we talk about stuff like this, like you should enjoy your life and you should build healthy habits that are lovely and that make you feel good. And like that sounds great for people. I think the hardest part usually is figuring out where to add back these these indulgences and these things that are bad for you. Like there's some things that are unquestionably bad for you that it's okay to eat anyway, but you have to be smart about it and thoughtful about yeah, it. Yeah. I, 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 again, we do often have the same ideas. And, and I remember many years ago, like I, I wrote a blog post that was, of course, there's such thing as a bad food. Um, <laughs> there are, there's, I've eaten some here. Like it's, it's okay. But right. I think that trying to, this idea of 
you know, the, the trite truisms of everything in moderation. There's no such thing as a bad food. I don't think they're necessary. I think we're allowed to appreciate the fact that some foods are not particularly healthy, um, that some things we should be consuming a lot less of. Unfortunately, they're often the things that taste the best. Um, <laughs> but that is what it is. And it's okay. But we, we need to be able to both appreciate that these are things worthy of minimization, but also that for most of us, they need to be part of life. That's amazing. So can you talk to me a little bit about, um, I know you're working on quantifying this to some degree, because what everything we've been talking about, the scientific literature is not talk, is not there yet. And it needs to be. Like, I, I really think it's important. But we're talking about subjective things. We're talking about an individual's decision of whether or not something is worth eating in any specific moment. So it, it becomes very difficult to quantify. But I believe you're working on solving this for us. <laughs> so for, for listeners who aren't familiar with me, I'm definitely not a researcher. And I would not describe myself as a scientist. I'm a clinician. And, you know, my job is to help people affect change. Uh, but I'm a opinionated clinician that has a blog and has been writing for a long, long time. And one of the things I always wrote about was finding a way to sort of quantify subjectively whether a diet is a good one or a bad one for a particular individual. Um, and so I came up with something that I called uh, the diet score. I needed a good acronym. And so that was a good acronym. It stands for the diet index of enjoyability total. And it's a score of zero to 100 with 10 different questions that allow people to sort of reflect on how easy or difficult that diet is, how enjoyable it is for them. And where I think it's valuable is, you know, we see all these short-term diet studies in the medical literature, three months, six months. That's not long-term when it comes to something that you've got to do forever. Uh, you can put up with anything in the short term. But having one of these questionnaires administered during a particular study might indicate that, hey, this is a more difficult diet to follow, perhaps. We were talking about intermittent fasting. The study came out yesterday looking at people who'd been put on, I think it was six months of an IF program, and 57% said that they could not see themselves doing this forever. That probably wouldn't be a high average diet score, but I'm sure there will be people within that group who found it wonderful, and they will score very highly, and this would be a very appropriate diet for them. And so what we want to do, and so there's some researchers out in New Zealand who are being the, I guess, the bench to my bedside where, you know, their job, they're the scientists and they're working on the stats and on the validation and it's actually already been administered to a group of people who were randomly assigned to either be on a, a low carb diet or a low fat diet for a year. Um, and then we're going to administer it online. But the goal is both for individuals to use to sort of suss out whether this particular diet they're on is useful to them, but also for research. And then if we can demonstrate that there is some you know, strong associations between high scores and people adhering to their diets and low scores and people quitting their diets, uh, this will have some value to the individual and also continue to push the field towards a more personalized approach, which is where I think it needs to be. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Yoni. Pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Foodist Podcast. I'm Daria Rose. And if you're interested in upgrading your own health style, learning how to get healthy and lose weight without dieting and without all of the suffering that it brings, then head over to my website, Summer Tomato, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. When you sign up, you'll get a free starter kit that'll teach you the basics of how to start changing the way you think about food, 
health, and weight loss. You'll also get a free chapter from my book, Foodist, called The Myth of Willpower that explains the science behind why the no pain, no gain mantra of the weight loss industry is the absolute worst approach to getting healthy. So come over to Summer Tomato and sign up. We have a fantastic community and we would love, love, love to have you. Thanks for listening and I will see you next time.